0: Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by HUC Connect, the Hebrew Union College's online platform for continuing education. I'm Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Skirball Campus and your host. Welcome to this episode of the College Commons Podcast and our conversation with Eric Lawey. Eric is the Rabbi Asher Weiser Chair for Medieval Biblical Commentary Research and Professor of Bible at Bar-Ilan University, where he teaches the history of Jewish biblical scholarship. He also directs Bar-Ilan's Institute for Jewish Bible Interpretation. His book, Rashi's Commentary on the Torah, Canonization and Resistance in the Reception of a Jewish Classic, won the 2019 Jewish Book Award in the category of scholarship. It was also a 2021 finalist for the Jordan Schnitzer Book Award in the category of Medieval and Early Modern Jewish History and Culture. Professor Lawi, thank you so much for joining us on the College Commons Podcast.
1: Pleasure to be here, thank you for having me.
0: I'd like to begin with an introduction to our protagonist, Solomon Ben-Isaac of Troyes, commonly known by the acronym of his name, Rashi. Can you give us a 60 second bio on Rashi?
1: I always like to start with a definition of his accomplishments that I heard from my teacher, Professor Izzatar Tursky of Harvard University. The way he described that achievement was as follows. Rashi wrote the classic commentaries on the two classics of Judaism. And by that he meant the Bible, but especially the Torah and uh, the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, that great compendium of rabbinic law and lore. And uh, either of those accomplishments certainly would have sufficed to ensure Rashi's enduring place in the annals of Jewish uh, literature. Uh, But both of them together, uh, having been produced by a single human being, as I say, is really uh, a larger than life achievement. Rashi is really the founder of a school of Jewish learning in northern France. There had been Ashkenazi Jews in Germany. There had been great rabbinic academies there where he studied in his younger years, but he brought that word to France and really put uh, Northern France on the map.
0: And by way of context, we should add that we're speaking about 11th century France, and he was a rabbi, not only in the library, but also as a communal leader, a pastor of sorts, in ways that were uh, foundational for that community of which he spoke in Northern Europe.
1: Right. Now, that's a very uh, crucial addendum that, as you say, he was not an ivory tower scholar detached from the concerns of uh, world Jewelry at the time. And some of those concerns were quite daunting. Uh, Rashi dies in 1105, and that means that he uh, lives the last years of his life in the shadow of the First Crusade, which was launched in northern France and the great Jewish communities where Rashi had studied as a youth in the Rhineland in Germany are decimated, Uh, large numbers of Jews are killed, Uh, some forcibly converted to uh, Christianity. So uh, those are the types of very dire and pressing concerns that towards the end of his life, at least, Rashi had to deal with issues like what happens if a person who was forcibly converted to Christianity that wants to return to the Jewish community, do they have to convert to Judaism all over again? not simple questions uh, to uh, to deal with, needless to say, and Rashi uh, is the one with the broad shoulders in northern France, at least, who has to deal with them.
0: Yeah, broad shoulders indeed. We might summarize him by saying he was the pinnacle of scholarship and a pioneer to boot when the stakes were really, really high. So, let's begin with the seemingly all-pervasive influence of Rashi's biblical commentary. You write, quote, in function, it matched the role of the now ever more inaccessible targum. The targum is the much older Aramaic translation of the Bible, which, which was part of the study curriculum of learned Jews. And in some ways, therefore, what you're saying is that Rashi became, for his generation, a re-translator of the biblical text. Is it fair to say that when... Jews the world over read the Bible, and I might also say today even read the Bible. They're, in fact, reading the Bible as understood by Rashi, even if they're not specifically reading his commentary. So deep is his influence?
1: I think that was largely true for many centuries, and it remains somewhat true in our own time, which is itself a sort of astounding fact that we could... Pause to ponder that somebody who lived, you know, it's going on close to a millennium still has a shaping influence on the way that many Jews understand the Bible. And I think it's interesting also to reflect on what you suggested, which is sometimes even unconsciously so, which is to say that any of us, for example, who have heard the story about Abraham as a youth rebelling against the culture in which he lives uh, to uh, embrace this wild and crazy new idea that he had called monotheism, and so on and so forth, is reading the Bible very much, as you say, through the eyes of a Midrashic tradition that admittedly pre-exists Rashi, but which Rashi makes forevermore, I would call, an indelible part of Jewish consciousness when they think of who Abraham was and uh, and what he stood for. And that, that does become the pattern more and more, uh, so much so that at a certain point, Uh, There's actually a legal ruling in the Great Code of Jewish Law, the Shulchan Aruch of Joseph Caro, which suggests that it's a requirement to prepare uh, week in and week out when one comes to the synagogue in advance, a private uh, preparation of the weekly Torah reading by reading it twice in the original Hebrew and once with the commentary of Rashi.
0: So we've established this titanic towering figure of jewish self-understanding it really goes far beyond even text i want to spend a minute to talk about the other side of this coin which is not the influence after the fact but the monumental work and act of writing such a commentary in the first place ink and parchment are expensive time of course is the ultimate commodity of anyone's life And for someone to initiate an unprecedented project of a more or less line-by-line commentary of scripture, one needs tremendous motivation, purpose. There has to be a reason to do this. What do you think motivated Rashi to write his biblical commentary? And why is that motivation so difficult for scholars today to suss out.
1: Yeah, you certainly uh, put your finger on on a key point with your uh, last observation, which is that this is a question that has intrigued scholars. A lot of what Rashi was doing was organizing a vast amount of material according to a certain principle, and the question is, what is that principle? And uh, here's where Rashi is really pioneering. He says, "It's true that there are all these midrashic interpretations, but I'm interested also in a in a level of meaning of the biblical text uh, that um, uh, really is new, Uh, not new in the Jewish world because it had been pioneered in other parts of the Jewish world, but it is new for the world of what we defined earlier as Ashkenazi Jewry. And it's something that he calls shuto mikra. It's sometimes translated as the plain sense of scripture and sometimes translated as the contextual meaning. What it uh, requires is attention to all sorts of things that the ancient Midrashic tradition almost flagrantly, sometimes blatantly ignored. Uh, what is the larger context of a biblical verse? Uh, what is the syntax of that verse? What do we know about the grammar of the words in the verse? All sorts of things that, uh, let's perhaps use a to term, a more rational reader of the Torah and the rest of the Tanakh, the rest of the Hebrew Bible, uh, might bring to bear when they're trying to figure out exactly what this text is is telling us. And Rashi is the great pioneer of this new approach in northern France. And then the question becomes your question, what exactly uh, was the motivation for innovating in this quite bold uh, manner, this new approach? Should be mentioned right off the bat that Rashi doesn't jettison Midrashic interpretations, far from it. One of the great peculiarities of his commentary is is despite his interest in this new approach, which we've called mikra, the contextual approach and so on. Uh, He mostly sticks with various Midrashic interpretations, but with a high degree of selectivity. So you have on the one hand, a new interest in plain sense. On the other hand, you have a new criterion for choosing certain Midrashim and leaving others on the cutting room floor. And the question is, what motivated Rashi? Some people say that he got wind of some developments along these lines from the Sephardic tradition. And we know that that's certainly true that the more grammatical approach that had been developed in the so-called golden age of Jewish learning in Muslim Spain was something that Rashi was partially aware of. He wasn't fully aware of it because most of that material was written in Arabic, a language he didn't understand. But some of it was written in Hebrew and he uses those uh, resources. Some have argued That it actually came from the larger Christian milieu in which he lived and certain developments in uh, Christendom of his day, which led uh, Christian interpreters to approach their scriptural tradition along lines uh, that I just described. Rashi is not somebody who tells us in any explicit way exactly what motivates this project. So I think we have to remain with a certain amount of indeterminacy in terms of uh, what, uh, what motivated the project. But you're certainly quite right that Rashi took it upon himself with gusto. And the results proved themselves in terms of at least uh, the popularity with which they were embraced by different segments of the Jewish world.
0: Would you be willing to hazard a definition for us of Pshat and Drash? With an understanding, as you say, that they bleed into one another, even though they often appear as if poles on opposite sides of a spectrum.
1: I will hazard a a definition by way of uh, an example that I learned from uh, one of my senior colleagues at Bar Ilan, one of the founders of the Department of Bible there, Professor Uriel Simon, and he tells a invented story about uh, a girl who got off a bus and was injured as a result of a car driving by and he says if a policeman arrives on the scene the policeman wants to find out what happened what did the bus driver do what did the girl do was she perhaps not paying attention because she was holding a cell phone all sorts of facts on the ground that will determine among other things who's culpable legally But what happens if this uh, grandfather is hearing the hourly news and hears about this story and thinks, you know, understandably about uh, his own uh, granddaughter and wants to make sure, God forbid, that uh, something doesn't happen to her in a similar situation? He may uh, say to her, well, you know what I heard on the news? I heard about a girl and uh, she was so busy with her Smartphone that she wasn't paying attention and she got off the bus. And as a result, uh, she was injured. The grandfather doesn't necessarily know all these details. And the point Professor Simon uh, wishes to make is that for the grandfather, it's really not that important if he has to invent or embellish the story a little bit because his goal is not the same as the policeman. We want policemen who are people who stick to the facts and only the facts. Uh, we want grandparents who are worried enough about their grandchildren to make sure that they get incentive to be careful uh, when they're uh, using their uh, phones and getting off of, of buses. And so the Midrashist is somebody who is interested in communicating a message for the here and now, is Professor Simon's point. Uh, and the pshatist, the plain sense interpreter, is someone who wants to know uh, just the facts, as it were. And so uh, when it comes to scripture, the plain sense interpreter is someone who is going to try to limit how much you embellish, how much you infiltrate things from um, external sources that don't appear explicitly in the text. Someone who's going to uh, stick to the rules of linguistics, genre, and context in order to determine the simplest meaning of the text. Whereas the Midrashus is much more freeform, much more imaginative. And uh, we'll uh, look at this word or even this letter and uh, build all sorts of elaborate uh, understandings of the biblical text. And so uh, we have in Rashi a combination of plain sense interpretations. We often estimate that they occupy something like a quarter of his uh, commentary, at least on the Torah, perhaps slightly more in the rest of the biblical books that he interpreted, which is almost the rest of the Bible. And then we have something like uh, we estimate 75% of interpretations, which are midrashic interpretations. Often Rashi does try to choose ones which are close to the plain sense, but many of them seem to be very remote from the plain sense, just like that grandfather who added all sorts of elaborate details that make you say, wait a second, how does he know that? And the answer is uh, there might not be much to build on, but they do communicate an important message. And that's what turns Rashi from. Not someone who was interested just in commenting on the Bible or interpreting the Bible, but also in terms of educating the Jewish people about all the things that he thought were important, the love of the land of Israel, the relationship between the human beings and a relationship between the human being and God, how miracles happen and so on and so forth. And so we sometimes nowadays speak of Rashi as someone who wears multiple hats, both the hat of the commentator trying to explain the text, but also the hat of the educator trying to educate his people and sometimes inspire his people just as any good rabbi Uh, will do a Saturday morning sermon, a Shabbat sermon uh, in the Beit Knesset in the synagogue.
0: The College Commons podcast is proud to be part of HUC Connect, the Hebrew Union College's online platform for continuing education. HUC Connect features four programs, webinars, Live conversations with social and cultural influencers on topics of civil society, arts and culture, religion, and redefining allyship. Community Connect, ready made lesson plans for synagogue and community learning. The Masterclass, live sessions of Judaica with HUC faculty exclusively for our alumni. Enroll soon because seats are limited. And of course, the College Commons podcast. In-depth conversations with Judaism's leading thinkers. For more information about HUC Connect and all it has to offer, visit huc.edu/hucconnect. And now, back to our program. Let's follow this educatorial role that you cite in relation to Rashi by picking up on someone whom you cite in your book, the late, great Nechama Leibovitch, one of the really great teachers of Torah in the 20th century. And she canonized an approach to Rashi by asking, what is the difficulty that Rashi is trying to tackle in any given comment? This was the way Naham Leibovitch organized classes and correspondence courses about reading Rashi uh, on a line by line or verse by verse basis and and working through them. What's proverbially bothering Rashi? Why did Rashi bother to spill the ink on this particular question when Rashi could have easily just moved on to the next verse or what have you? Behind that question, I wanna ask you if there might be something lurking, some suspicion or fear On Rashi's part, that if left untutored and unchurched, a given student reading Torah as pshat, reading Torah contextually or in its plain sense fashion, that there is a risk that even a well-intentioned student could in fact be led astray from Judaism by Torah itself that there's room for misunderstanding at even the contextual level, and that Rashi's educatorial mission is to harness the natural inclination to read a text with the grain, but also to massage and to make sure that the student does indeed arrive at the greater Jewish religious and moral questions that suit the tradition as Rashi understands it. Is that a possibility in understanding Rashi's motivation?
1: Yeah, I think it is not only a possibility, but uh, in some measure, a probability. I think we could address the question historically and somewhat uh, ahistorically. Historically, Rashi is writing in the Middle Ages, as I've already mentioned. This is a time when Jews are everywhere, a tiny minority, either living under The uh, crescent or the cross, as we say, which is, say, under the uh, rule of Muslims or Christians, for Rashi, the more relevant uh, ruling power was the world of uh, European Christendom. And so even where there wasn't explicit pressure on Jews to convert to Christianity, there is inevitably, as any minority is likely to experience, a strong pull to assimilate, especially uh, if you're living in the Middle Ages when being part of the majority in-group offers all sorts of uh, benefits and which frees you from all sorts of elements of subservience that you experience as as a minority. So the idea that we already mentioned, you mentioned really, which is that Rashi is not just some ivory tower scholar and that he's a communal leader, extends to the necessity sometimes to buttress faith among uh, Jews who might waver, and uh, to the degree that there were elements of the plain sense of the Bible that perhaps might lead uh, in problematic uh, directions that's uh, something Rashi is certainly eager to uh, address. I'll just give you you know one example along those lines from the opening chapter of Genesis that God says not say a right Let us make man in our image and people puzzle over the fact that it's the uh, first person plural. Shouldn't it say, let me or let myself make man first human being in uh, the divine image. And uh, this is something where Rashi is well aware of the fact that Christians will hone in on the plural and see this as justification for the Christian doctrine, Catholic doctrine of the uh, Trinity. So that would be one example where the plain sense could be problematic, and Rashi will address that in his uh, commentary. But leaving aside the immediate historical surroundings in which Rashi works, traditional Judaism works with what uh, Jacob Neusner called the dual Torah, the written Torah and the so-called oral Torah, all these elaborations of the biblical text that one finds in rabbinic literature, especially in the Talmud. And as I mentioned earlier, it's on this basis that Jews lead their wives. you know, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Well, in order to do that, one thing you have to know is when the Sabbath day begins and when it ends. And that's not something that's specified in uh, Torah and not in the Ten Commandments where that uh, verse appears and not uh, not anywhere else. And as I always uh, tell my students, I think most of us, when we get up in the morning, we say, oh, the new day has begun. We don't tend to think of the new day beginning uh, the previous evening. So how do we know that that's when the Sabbath day begins in order to uh, keep it however we keep it? So there was always this tension that was felt strongly, uh, sometimes in places more than others, between the so-called written word, as you said, plain, unadorned, read straight up and the elaborations, which again provided the basis upon which Jewish life was lived. So part of what Rashi does is to uh, lessen that tension and uh, bridge the gap. And as you say, allay any uh, suspicions that some Jews might have that perhaps these are just inventions of some latter-day rabbis that actually don't express the divine will as it's in- encoded in the, in the divine uh, So from every point of view, Rashi's uh, midrashic interpretations, I think, are the ones that won him the greatest fame and which proved to be the most enduring in the consciousness of uh, ordinary Jews. The plain sense interpretations were something of a more elitist affair that were of interest to a certain stratum of of Jewish uh, scholars. But uh, as you suggest, it was this bridging activity between the plain unadorned uh, sense of the text, which could prove problematic for a variety of reasons, and the uh, traditional Jewish reading of the text that Rashi managed to bridge so successfully. Let's
0: revert for a moment to the theme of the grandeur of this undertaking and its profound influence. Sometimes we forget that works that we accept today as classics did not always enjoy that status. Maimonides, for example, is perhaps best known among those who produced scholarly controversy in their lifetime and immediately after, but who ended up being a classic. So to Rashi, who had his detractors, who were these detractors and why did they reject Rashi?
1: They ranged in terms of the specifics of what it is they found troubling about Rashi, but I would say uh, in general, some of the foci of uh, what I called resistance to Rashi in the, in the title of the book were one, the overly midrashic approach, which I've stressed was I think highly appealing to Jews, but for a certain uh, strand or stream of uh, more, let's call it rationalist uh, Jewish biblical interpretation. Rashi set out to uh, uncover the plain sense and he failed miserably. Uh, we have a comment of another famous uh, Bible commentator from the Middle Ages who lives uh, not that long after Rashi. Abraham Ibn Ezran represents really this Sephardic school of plain sense interpretation. And he says uh, in a very cutting way, really, uh, Rashi thought that he was uncovering the plain sense, but he only managed to do that one time in a thousand uh, and now even if even Ezra said that as an exaggeration, clearly that is no compliment. And that was one objection that some scholars uh, raised. This was true, by the way, not just in circles outside of Ashkenaz, but uh, even in Rashi's own family, there's a famous Bible commentary, Torah commentary, at least written by his grandson. And uh, he also uh, basically says between the lines, uh, fairly politely most of the time, but quite unequivocally, Uh, My grandfather set out to do something. He had the right idea. In terms of execution, uh, he left a lot to be desired, or at least he was at an early stage of this process of uncovering the plain sense. And I'm now going to uh, carry forward that project in a much more rigorous manner. So that was one objection. A second objection had to do with the whole question of what I'd call faith and reason. Uh, You mentioned Maimonides. Maimonides, of course, is the great medieval Jewish spokesperson for the idea that uh, somehow faith and reason have to be correlated, that we as Jews don't turn our back on the sciences. Uh, Judaism is not a faith that requires us to turn our back on demonstrated truths, in which case that poses all sorts of challenges for how to read classical texts, especially Uh, biblical texts. Rashi lived in the world of Ashkenaz, where, as I like to tell my students, if you asked Rashi, what do you think of Aristotle, he would have presumably answered, who's Aristotle? He never would have heard the name, which was, of course, such a source of inspiration to Maimonides and a whole school of Jewish scholars living in southern uh, Mediterranean uh, centers of of Jewish learning, who not only took Aristotle seriously, but uh, as Maimonides says, thought uh, perhaps that he was the highest heights that a human being could achieve uh, short of prophecy. And so for those types of scholars, the fact that Rashi attempted to unpack uh, scriptural texts absent any training in logic, absent any training in mathematics, absent any training in physics, absent any training in what was considered the highest uh, form of scientific uh, pursuit in the Middle Ages, metaphysics, and that was simply scandalous. And it was a complete non starter in terms of understanding the divine word, which they took to be congruent with, uh, with science and had to be understood in light of what the Greco Arabic scientific uh, tradition taught. A third element, which occurs in some texts of those who complain about Rashi, is something I alluded to before. Rashi did inherit elements of the great leaps forward in the understanding of Biblical Hebrew. Presumably, the starting place for understanding any text, whether it's in Chinese and Italian and French, is to know the grammar of the language. How do French verbs work? And, uh, you know, uh, how does uh, Italian syntax work? If you don't know those things, you're not going to be a very successful reader of texts in those uh, languages. And so in Muslim Spain in particular, uh, based on developments that started in the Islamic East, there have been uh, tremendous new discoveries in the field of biblical Hebrew. Uh, That is to say, they're writing about uh, how to understand biblical Hebrew, but they're writing in Arabic, uh, which provided a rich scientific vocabulary for discussing linguistics. And uh, so Rashi inherits the part of that tradition that was composed in Hebrew. He does not inherit the much more sophisticated forms of uh, Judeo-Arabic grammatical discoveries that were composed only in Arabic. And so some scholars uh, note that Rashi was simply incapable of unpacking biblical Hebrew on the basis of the latest scientific findings about how it is one understands biblical Hebrew. So you have the complaint that Rashi's overly midrashic didn't uh, pursue a pshatist agenda sufficiently. You have the complaint that Rashi is ignorant of sciences, and that's a necessary ingredient in any, uh, you know, uh, successful grappling with the meaning of the biblical word. And you also have the charge that Rashi's grammar is inadequate to the task of fully understanding the biblical word because he doesn't know all the rules of uh, the language in which it's uh, written so that's quite a panoply of uh, pretty serious uh, charges leveled against rashi's commentary in different times and places emanating from parts of the jewish world which as i alluded to really come uh, from a very different world of uh, education thought and uh, training in in non-jewish sources
0: so having discussed the many complicated layers to rashi's uh, biblical commentary i'd like to ask you to round out this conversation by sharing with us the most surprising thing about rashi that we need to know
1: rashi had this surprising ability to uh, speak uh, to young and old to men and women to Jews uh, prior to the Enlightenment and after the Enlightenment in ways that uh, were continually challenging and refreshing to Jews in in different times and places. And that really is an accomplishment. That element to me is really one that ought to astonish us. We take Rashi very much for granted in many circles, but uh, I think we should be genuinely surprised by that achievement.
0: Well, Professor Eric Lowy, thank you so much for taking the time for the great conversation and engaging us with this incredible hero of Jewish thinking. It was really a
1: pleasure. My pleasure was definitely mutual, so thanks for that.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons Podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts. And check out HUC Connect, compelling conversations at the forefront of Jewish learning. For more information about all that HUC Connect has to offer, visit huc.edu hucconnect.